0: Hello, welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon. This is episode 197. Who'd have thought it? We're getting closer to the big 200. Uh, I believe BBC Four are, as we speak, clearing their schedules for the big night. They're going to have to... Uh, this going be one Friday where they don't show that Fleetwood Mac documentary. Anyway, on a music theme, on a music theme, straight into the emails. Uh, and Lorraine Moore writes, When I heard the latest song from one of my favourite bands, The Wave Pictures, I thought of you and your podcast listeners would appreciate it too. Now, this is a song about Hazel Irving, and we're going to come to it shortly, but I'll continue with Lorraine's uh, email. She says, As a female snooker obsessive, I also wanted to say I really enjoyed watching Onye's win over Wu Yuzza in the Welsh Open qualifying. I think she's really good for the game. It's a shame she hasn't been able to travel from Hong Kong to take part in all the tournaments this season. It'll be interesting to see how she progresses on the tour next year. I hope she does well. I've been listening to the podcast for several years now and never miss an episode. Keep up the great work. Thank you, Lorraine. Will you introduce something here? I put this on Twitter. Uh, this band, uh, the Wave Pictures, <laughs> have released a song called Hazel Irvin, and it is about Hazel, a much-loved uh, BBC sports presenter, who's been doing the snooker now almost as long as David Vine did it. Um, now, we're not six music, you know, I'm, I'm not uh, I'm not Lauren Laverne, but uh, I-, I am going to play a bit of it now. I'm going to play enough so that you can hear it without me having to pay them any money. So that's, <laughs> that's the calculation, because there's certain rules, obviously, about uh, PRS and all that, but I'm going to play a few seconds, which I believe I can do. Um well, here it is this is a song for hazel Irvine. she's the girl that I wish was mine she's too good for the That's enough I think. Uh Hazel Irvine, by the way, pictures available, uh, I'm sure in all I am gonna say, all good record shops, like it's nineteen eighty seven. <laughs> I'm sure you can download that from the usual offices. Um an extraordinary <laughs> extraordinary song. It's quite funny, I think. Um, although that like, this there for the she's far too good for the BBC, she does her research properly. What, what are they saying about the others on there? But anyway, um but yes, I mean Hazel listen is uh, the thing about Hazel is obviously she's she's on television, but That's the extent of her wishing to push herself forward. She's not on social media. She's not interested in profile or self-promotion or any of that stuff. She's just a great professional at her job. She does a brilliant job across all sports, certainly when she does the Olympics or any of those multi-sport events. The way she sort of seamlessly shifts from one sport to another um, is fantastic, and uh, we all respect Hazel greatly, and she'll be back for the World Championship for the BBC. She's now got a song named after her, which is something, isn't it? And uh, I mean, it's quite a a sort of... um, it's quite a niche, uh, group of people to be with. Sports presenters who had songs named after them. Um Half Man, Half Biscuit, of course, we have got form in this area. Uh, they did one about Bob Wilson. Dickie Davis Eyes, that's another one of theirs. Uh, indeed they did, uh, Everybody's Doing the Len Ganley Stance. Um, but, uh, yes, I don't know, I don't know any of the snooker, uh, commentators. I mean, there was the, uh, the, the snooker presenters was, the, of course, uh, Marvin Gaze. I heard it through David Vine. Uh, yeah, thank you. But um, anyway, <laughs> that is available, in, as I say, in all the places where music these days is available. Uh-huh. And I hope, Hazel, uh, I hope Hazel can see the funny side of that. Uh, we move on. James Watt. Firstly, I just wanted to say thanks for the podcast. I discovered it during lockdown and have since looked forward to it every week. Snooker has never been better placed with current podcast offering with yourself and Nick and Phil from Talking Snooker. One thing I was hoping you'd clarify for me as I haven't been able to find a definitive answer online, is the apparent difference between the 128-person tour and the top 64. Basically, how is a tour card in doubt when a player falls outside the 64, when in theory all 128 professionals are professionals for two years? The answer is probably undoubtedly simple and obvious. But this mystery bugged me for a long time. I haven't been able to solve it. Thanks again. If you ever find yourself at a loose end in Belfast during the Northern Ireland Open, there's a pint of Guinness with your name on it. Uh, thank you, James. Uh, firstly, a churlish thing for me to say, but I don't drink Guinness, but I'll accept accept—I'll accept any other alcohol for the uh, equivalent price. <laughs> That's good of me, isn't it, that? Um, uh, in terms of your question, i uh, unless I've misunderstood it, I, I think what you're saying is if everyone's got a two-year card, how can anyone drop off? Well, of course, the two-year card only applies for those two years. Then you're down to one year. So, for example, Oliver Lyons... To, uh, got back on Through the Q-School Two years ago So he's come to the end Of his second year now So He's fighting For his tour card Um One uh, Players On the first year Don't have to worry about Until next season So Oliver Lyons I think he's back In the 64 now Because he did well In Turkey Obviously got to the Quarter-finals But He's an example Of a player who Is coming to the end Of a two-year card And has dropped out of, And had dropped out Of the top 64 I think he's back in now But Michael Holt's another example He's been a professional For 25 years Whatever Um but you only get the. It uh, didn't apply in his case because it wasn't in operation then. But the point is, new players only get the two-year card at the start when they come on the tour. Um, after two years, you're back onto sort of a rolling one-year card in effect. So obviously, someone like Michael Holt, Tepchar, and New uh, are under threat of relegation. Um, so yeah, I, unless I misunderstood your question, that's it basically. How's, you say? How's a two-year? How's a tour card in doubt when a player falls out the 64? When in theory, all 128 professionals for two years. Well, that's right. They are, but then after those two years, they go back to just a rolling one-year card. Um, so, yeah, hopefully that hopefully that answers that. Stuart May, uh, with the. Oh, by the way, I should say that this. Should, maybe should have introduced us at the start. Of this episode again, we'll be going through the the the, the bulging we Are we getting a lot of emails these days? Um, I think people just feel sorry for me. But um, just to say, in terms of what's been happening in the snooker world, obviously we haven't had a sort of professional tournament in the last week. But uh, Ryan Thomason, a good friend of Neil Robertson's, has won the Australian qualifying event to get on the tour, so he'll be with a two-year card next season. Sean O'Sullivan uh, through the Q Tour, the new Q Tour is going to be back on the tour. Well done to him. And uh, Robbie McGuigan won the latest event. There's going to be a playoff event for the remaining Q Tour places. Um, so, and also determining uh, the, the the players in the uh, in the World Championship, the the invites. So uh, it's kind of things bubbling up nicely there. Rebecca Kenner won uh, the uh, the English Ladies event as well. Uh, so there's been action go- taking place, but um, obviously the professional tour is, is kind of what a lot of people are interested in. Gibraltar coming up this week, Tour Championship next week. Let's go back to Stuart May. With the World Championship upcoming and four weeks of exhilarating snooker to look forward to, I was looking to the qualifying rounds and the potential matchups with only realistically the imminent Gibraltar Open to affect seedings. The format of the qualifiers changed in 2020, From everyone, whether ranked 17 or 1-8, to having to win through three rounds to get to the Crucible, to a tiered qualifying system over four rounds, and needing to win either two, three or four matches, depending on your ranking. It seems unfair on the players who are on the first year of a two-year card, that they are limited to the seeding they can reach, as their points are earned from a lot lot less events. Would it not be fairer and better to use the one-year list, having removed the top 16 automatic qualifiers based on the two-year list, to rank the players for the qualifying rounds for the World Championship. This would ensure that the rankings are a true reflection, as all players would have had the equal opportunity to play in every event that go to make up the rankings. Uh, oh, hang on, we carry on. Uh, you say, you may say that it levels out in the end for everyone, as they would then benefit in their second year World Championship over the first year tour cards, players. However, surely it would be better if the number of matches needed to reach the Crucible reflected performances equally over both years. I'll be interested to hear your thoughts on this. It's not a, a bad idea, Stuart. I suppose the only thing is, if you're going to cede the qualifying based on the one-year list, why not cede the whole World Championship based on a one-year list? Um, so the top 16 at the Crucible would be the top 16 this season. I don't personally agree with that, by the way. I think the two-year list is the way to do it uh, because it just takes into account more events. We had an email last week. Um, it may even have been from you. So from somebody, obviously, um, saying about uh, taking off... Um, yeah points gradually rather than this sort of we use the example of Steve Maguire suddenly dropping from the top 16 to sort of 39 in the world. Maybe it could be more gradual uh, taking away points over two years, That's, I think there's merit in that um, but in terms of this I mean yeah the, obviously players on the first year in theory are, are at a disadvantage but you know we saw last year Jamie Jones had such a great season, he ended up as as a first season professional not only qualifying, he beat Maguire at the Crucible, up to the second round so it kind of can be done. I kind of liked actually when they did have the three rounds and it, and the, and everyone from 17 onwards was in round one. It was just a sort of clearer. Of course, the other thing that should be said about the world qualifying uh, this year is that it, it is remaining best of 11 um, until the last round, which is best of 19. Now, this originally the change originally came two years ago in COVID times when the I uh, mean I was there. It was a pretty um, joyless affair, really. That the whole thing it was locked down snooker. You have to get a bus from the hotel. You're in a bubble. You got a bus from the hotel. Everyone was on the bus. You to, went to the venue, played your matches, came back. Um, and the idea there was they didn't have best of 19 because they didn't want as, you know, too many people in the venue at any one time because obviously people would have to be coming back from the first session to play the second session. They didn't want that crossover. Um, which is fine. But what I think what's happened since is, um, and we've made this point before is the streaming contract they have for four table streaming. Uh, this is a, a good model for them to keep it best of 11. They can, you know, generate revenue. Uh, but it's the World Championship, and I do feel personally that it should have gone back to best in 19. I'm not, uh, you know, losing sleep over this. I just feel for this event, it's always kind of had that, um, particularly, well, certainly in later qualifying rounds. I mean, in, in the days when it was wide open, they had to play shorter matches early on just to get it all done. But we're only talking four rounds, Um I think it's a shame, but uh, what I would say is this though, and it's it's up to players to kind of raise this, because it happened at the home nations as well. We, we've got qualifying now, and you get to the venue. There's four tables, and they're all streamed, and that's great for Discovery Plus viewers. They can watch whatever table they want, which is fantastic. That's that's a good thing. But if the if the the reason for that is to raise revenue through streaming, where's that revenue going? Because the home nations prize fund has not increased since it started. So where is that money going now? I'm sure there's a perfectly uh, reasonable answer to that um, but players I think should pro- probably actually ask the question okay, we're fine if you want to uh, you know, reconfigure qualifying and, and, and some tournaments to raise streaming revenue but where's that revenue actually going to which area of the game is it going back into and as I say, I'm sure there's a perfectly um, reasonable explanation um, I just think in terms of the World Championship qualifying the best in 19s, that second session you know, if it's close and maybe someone's coming back, there's something special about that. It's not to say the best of 11s won't be exciting in their own in their own way. And I don't agree that it um, diminishes the, the, the sort of overall um, achievement of winning a World Championship. I saw someone saying it the other day. It's ridiculous. It makes no difference to anyone at the Crucible who's been seeded through how the qualifiers have come through. And the qualifiers, you know, will be good players because they're all good players. But... Um, in general, I think it should be best in 19. If it was down to me, it would be, but it isn't, um, and so it's not. Mark and John, we recently attended the Welsh Open for the first time, having previously been to the Masters, the Shootout and the English Open. We have to say it was a fantastic venue, a great building with great facilities, and the stewards and the players went above and beyond to be helpful and friendly. Our only complaint, however, is that we were hoping to meet you. We plan to build our own snooker room soon and have many photos of ourselves with various players to put on the wall. But as huge fans of your podcast, we decided a photo with you would be the centrepiece to make us smile each time we play. We looked for you for two days and then bumped into Neil Folds, who informed us you were commentating from London, which is where we'd come from. We're still nursing our disappointment, but have vowed to find you at a future event. We did, however, have a lovely chat with Fergal O'Brien. Our turn to name-drop him in your podcast. What a nice man he is. Apart from being let down by you, it was a fantastic and well-run event – and we recommend it highly. We look forward to meeting you one day. And thanks again for your podcast. Well, thank you. I mean, you say let down by me. I go where I'm told to. So, you know, if it had been down to me, I would have loved to have been in Wales. But, you know, we have certain COVID rules to follow. And I was following them. And Neil was there because he was uh, in the studio. Um, I think you maybe overrate the uh, the impact of a photograph of me in the snooker room. But anyway, I'd be delighted. Uh, if I'm at a torment and you come and make yourselves uh, known, I'd be delighted to, to say hello, obviously. Um, I'm glad you enjoyed the tournament anyway. <clears throat> Christine writes, Would it be a good idea to have the age limit for the seniors tour at 50 years, 14 days? It would change if anyone over that age won a ranking title. Uh, I really hope I got the existing age of the oldest ranking event winner correct, or well, that first sentence will sound completely random. Well, Christine, the uh, Ray Reardon, uh, 1982 uh, Players Champion, uh, Players Professional Tournament, I think it was called. Uh, He won that, and he was indeed, uh, as you say, fifty. And that's the uh, the sort of target. Ronnie O'Sullivan. He's already the youngest uh, ranking event winner: seventeen years, three hundred and fifty-eight days. And you're quite correct, Ray Reardon: fifty years, fourteen days. So Ronnie, he's not actually that long now, sort of three or four years until he could potentially take that from Ray Reardon. Although Mark Williams, John Higgins, you know, and potentially others, you know, we've seen Joe Perry win one, Anthony Hamilton still going strong. These sort of people. Could still potentially take that record. Um, the seniors is an interesting one, isn't it? Obviously, you know, again, it's a commercial entity. They're trying to make money. They need really the sort of three strands to it. They need the sort of legends, or you know, the the, the Dennises, the Cliffs. Although they seem to be retiring now. Joe Joe Johnson, obviously Henry White, Parrott, those sort of people who we remember from years ago. I guess tour players as well give it credibility and. Someone like Ken Doherty is still on the tour. I think anyone outside the 64 on the tour can play in it. But also, you want to generate interest through opportunity, so you need qualifying events. You need people to, lesser-known people maybe, but people to come forward and, and have a go themselves. And that creates a great opportunity, for example, at the World Seniors Championship, for someone to come through qualifying and walk down those steps at the Crucible. What a moment that is for a player maybe who never hit the heights as a professional, but now is enjoying playing snooker in their, what we might call their dotage. So, uh, that's all fine. I, I I think what Jason Francis has done with the seniors is fantastic, actually. Um, I know it's not to everyone's taste, but nothing ever is. But, you know, he's done a good job. One thing with Jason is he finds great venues. I mean, that one in Hull, everyone raves about. Um, he's got a sort of theatrical background. He's, he was on uh, an edition of this podcast a few years ago. You can go back and listen to it. Um, but, yeah, he's done a good job now working with the WPBC as well. Um, in terms of the age limit, I mean, you could say 50, um, but, you know, why not uh, extend it a little bit lower down, 45, 40, whatever you want to say. I guess the issue is, if you just said, right, anyone on the tour can play in it, the problem with that is then you will have, if, if like, suppose Sullivan and Higgins and Williams pitched up, and the Binghams of this world, and even, like, people you don't really think of as over 40, like Matthew Stevens, Barry Hawkins... They're gonna, Neil Robertson now. Actually, he's forty. They're going to end up just winning the tournaments, and then they won't be any different to any other tournaments So I think there has to be—you have to kind of keep those people out for now um, to give everyone else a chance. But I, uh, yeah, other than that, I think uh, I think they're doing a good uh, a good job with it. Uh, the, and of course, uh, straight after the the World Championship, the World Seniors will be on at the Crucible on the BBC Red Button in the UK. Paul Robertson, I'm an avid snooker watcher and semi-regular pool amateur player. I love the sport. I still play with the first new queue I was given as a present. It's a two-piece queue, and I noticed no pro players appear to use this type of queue. I assume two-piece cues are seen as inferior to one-piece. Um, it may be right that they are. I mean, uh, uh, John Spencer I believe won the World Championship with a two-piece queue, the first one, 1977. Um, yeah, I mean, I-, I would have to sort of go through every player on tour, but I think m- definitely most of them use one-piece cues. Um that's kind of, I guess, what they've kind of become accustomed to. I could guarantee one thing, though. If, if suddenly, say, O'Sullivan and Trump suddenly started using two-piece cues, then everyone would follow suit. So it's kind of one of those things that you just sort of follow what you're what you're sort of used to. But um, anyway, uh, the other thing about – the good thing about two-piece cues is uh, – this sounds a minor point, but it's actually, on a practical level, you know, the case – He's smaller, so if you're getting on the bus or, whatever, or what, wherever you're going, you're not lugging around a big sort of cue case. Um, not a problem, really, for professionals, I suppose. Now, Max likes to write it most weeks with a new idea, and he's got this one here, and he's, he's happy with it, I think it's fair to say. I have the idea of the century, which both satisfies your love for, for traditional snooker tournaments and brings back a lost format that many people yearn for. How about a doubles competition where the pairs have to share the same surname? This would be brilliant and might even forge unlikely friendships that transcend the sport. Hear me out, kind sir. Off the top of my giant head, I can think of a number of potentially explosive partnerships. Ronnie and Sean O'Sullivan, Neil and Jimmy Robertson, Michael and Jimmy White, Jack and Jamie Jones, or indeed Dwayne, Laura and Ryan Evans, Steve and Mark Davis, Karen and Gary Wilson, Mark and Robbie Williams, and of course Peter and Oliver Lyons. Before you dismiss this as daft, more doubles partners could be created by Deadpool in order to extend the field. Imagine the fun, for example, if Zhu Sir changed his name to Zhu Fu in order to play with Marco Fu, or conversely, Ding Chen Wei changed his name to King for a Mark and Ding King partnership. <laughs> Stick with this. Uh, the remit could be extended further to a Pro-Am event if necessary. The obvious dream team of Donald and Judd Trump would certainly create a few, a decent few column, in column inches. Looking forward to hearing a wise words on this one all the very best and keep up the exemplary work, Max. Well, <laughs> yes, the surname thing, um, why not? You see, you, you, what, you missed a trick here because you could extend it across the generations. So you could have, we talk about senior snooker, you could have Mark and Rex Williams. You could have Matthew and Kirk Stevens. Um, you can't have Stephen Fred Davis because Fred is no longer with us. But you know what I'm saying you could, uh, you know, go back Tony Wilson and Karen Wilson, etc., uh, etc. Cetera, et cetera. Uh, Wayne Jones and and Dwayne Jones. Uh, not only the same name, but they rhyme. So uh, yes, um, I tell you what, Max. What I'll do is I'll leave that with you to promote. You go and find a sponsor, venue, and a broadcaster, and a time in the calendar. And uh, come back to us, and we'll uh, we'll we'll be there. We'll be there, and uh, look forward to that. Uh, to, to rescue things, we're having to go to Dave Tyndall. That's, that's how things have cut have gone. A friend of the podcast. Uh, who now, I apologise to you, Dave, because you were going to send us an email about your century break, which I forgot to get back to you about. Um, but anyway, you have sent an email in, which sort of covers it. You say, Dave says, I think I may have unlocked the secret to snooker success for aging men such as myself. Yoga. I started doing it in late 2021 when I wasn't feeling too well. I now do three classes a week and feel much better as a result. When I came on the Snooker Scene podcast a few months ago, I said my ambition was to one day make a 100 break. Uh, It'll behooves me to say it should have been to come on the Snooker Scene podcast, day, but you achieved that by by doing that very thing. Anyway, uh, he says, well, that day finally arrived a few weeks ago when I knocked in a break of 109 on table 25 at the Northern Snooker Centre. It felt quite a moment to pull it off given that I would dreamt about doing it since the early 80s. So the big question is, did yoga play a part? There's certainly some logic to such a theory. Yoga increases flexibility and calms the mind. Did I maybe feel more comfortable over certain shots? And perhaps being able to stretch better meant I didn't use the rest a couple of times when I previously might have. As for the mind, before I potted the blue that would take me past 100, I took a photo of it to record the moment. Bizarrely, I didn't think I would miss. Was that due to a more positive mindset which yoga has helped create? So if it helped me, the obvious conclusion is, could it benefit all snooker players? I had a Google and found a tweet by Ronnie O'Sullivan from 2015 saying he just had his first yoga lesson, and he still does it today. Also, a recent interview with John Higgins revealed he got into yoga as part of a health kick. Both are obviously still going strong, and just maybe yoga is helping. With the focus on mind and body... Snooker and yoga seem natural bedfellows. A comedian called Dominic Woodward once tweeted that snooker is just yoga with a tail. It didn't get a single like, but I think he had a point. Thank you, Dave. Well, firstly, congratulations on the century. I mean, you know, you've been trying for 40 years, as you say, to do it, and that's, uh, that's fantastic. Uh, so congratulations. It, t- it takes some, uh, how many use the word chuchpa? Uh, that's not even how you pronounce it, but, uh, to take a picture of the blue before potting it. Um, Because had you missed Then you know That would have been A permanent reminder Of your hubris But you didn't miss And that's good Um, Can yoga help I suppose the problem is If you cite O'Sullivan And Higgins as examples You know They were doing pretty fine I think with or without it Now obviously they're getting older Uh, Maybe it's helped them In in later life I'm pretty sure Mark Williams Doesn't do yoga I'm (laughs) pretty sure about that I don't think It's in Joe Perry's Retinue What's the word Um, What's the word Not retinue Not reservoir uh, repertoire, that's it, I knew it was somewhere between the two um, We can edit this later uh, So, it's uh, citing a Sullivan Higgins is hard to say I think these things can't hurt And I think, you know, healthy mind, healthy body There's, there's definitely something in that um, Just feeling good, you know Just feeling good about yourself If you can lose weight, if you can feel more Kind of Yeah, supple, whatever whatever you want to Whichever way you want to put it, I'm not an expert Stephen Hendry definitely did it at one point um, although I think that was <laughs> that coincided with the time he was struggling. But anyway, the main thing to come out of that is that Dave's made a century, and that's all good. Uh, now, speaking of making centuries, or not making them, as we segue into Michael Deakin, who sent two emails, which I'll, I'll splice together. He said, a fellow snooker obsessive here, quick question, how on earth did Perry Manns have a career in snooker lasting between 1961 and 1987, according to various sources, without compiling a verified century break. I had to double-check QTracker website to confirm this. Seems unbelievable. Keep up the good work. Your podcast contains a good mix of arcaneery and self-deprecation. How about that? Arcaneery and self-deprecation. And then he replied again. He said, with regard to my previous email, I've just realised this question is covered in podcast number 148, which by sheer coincidence, I plucked out to listen to today whilst we're between tournaments. I should have known this nugget... Would have come up by now. Such is the quality of your listenership. Well, I, my memory of that is because that's over a year ago now. I think uh, on possibly on QTrack track, it was Peter Mans, whose Perry's father was listed. Um, but Perry Mans, in general, he, you know, it's always rolled out of the masters. He won without a fifty, size breaks, forty-eight, all the rest of it. But he was a fantastic potter. He played a completely different game, really, to anyone else. He just potted bulls and he was content to, you know, make small breaks, but always sort of control the table so the, he's, he was a great potter to watch but a lot of the frames he played got very dragged out because ball went, balls went awkward and got a bit scrappy but he was a great potter Perry Manns, and make no mistake uh, and you know he won the Masters he was in the world final so these are these are achievements which uh, should not be uh, looked down upon he's just a different style of snooker really and not one anyone since has really sort of taken on I mean he was a bit of a one off I suppose. Now, we continue with Richard Bassey. Greetings from possibly your most westerly correspondent. I'm in Oregon, about an hour from the Pacific coast. I've been playing and following snooker since the 1980 UK Championships, and grew up in the Black Country, practising in Dudley Snooker Centre when Martin Clark worked there in exchange for free practice time. I entered my first tournament there and was swiftly put in my place by Dave Fimbo. I later crossed swords with Nick Dyson in the South Manchester League, though my sword was more of a penknife. <laughs> we'll, we'll, cross over, we'll, we'll, we'll cross over that uh, But at Dudley Snooker Centre uh, Phil Yates uh, was uh, quite active in those days you may well have uh, run across Phil Anyway, he says I have some questions for you this week The first is one I've had no luck finding the answer to It resurfaced for me after Tom Ford's match with Ronnie O'Sullivan In the European Masters recently Ford opened a frame with a 72 Nine reds and blacks Ronnie replied with 74 to win the frame Taking the remaining six reds with five blacks and a pink I'm as positive as I could be that one time, sometime pre-1996, Steve Davis played Jimmy White, where White made 72, as Ford did, missing the 10th red to the middle. Davis cleared with all reds and blacks for 75. I believe the only time this has happened in professional snooker. In one frame, two scoring visits only, 147 points scored. Both visits scoring the maximum possible, without foul points, and as equally divided as possible. The perfect frame of sorts. Uh, when I couldn't find this on QTracker a while back, I doubted myself, but I've since come to discover that not 100% of QTracker is accurate or complete. Not a criticism, it's a brilliant goldmine of a site. Then I came across a thread on a well-used snooker forum last week discussing highest breaks made in a frame which that player still lost. My Davis White example wasn't in the thread, but other examples that were in it were not on QTracker or other snooker data sites I know. Do you, do you have any way, then, of definitively validating my recollection? Well, before we move on to your other points, let's deal with that. Uh, no, I don't. It's a, <laughs> it's a simple answer. I don't remember that match you're talking about uh, between Davis and White. You kind of feel this must have happened at some point, but then again, if it had happened, we probably would know about it. So if anyone out there, I don't know, if anyone out there knows what he's saying is, has anyone won a frame with a 75 break after someone's made a 72? So effectively, it's a split maximum. You know, you, you've made, A maximum has been made in the frame between two players. Um, so I don't know of that, and, uh, yeah, um, other people may. My other question is about Neil Folds. He's often now presented as a former world number three, but I'm again convinced that on the eve of the 1986 UK Championship, Neil was provisionally the world number two. I remember this because it was the only time I convinced my brother to bet money on a snooker match, noting the false odds for the final, given the actual gap between number one and two was, in fact, a chasm. I made Davis a one to five shot, but the bookies were quoting four to nine and one to two. Again, any insight, perhaps from the man himself? Uh, well, I don't have Neil with me right now, but um, yeah, it's entirely possible he would have been provisionally number two. But of course, in those days, the rankings—you had your ranking for a whole season. So after the World Championship, your world ranking was set for the whole of the next season. Now, Neil in 1986, at the start of the season, he won the first ranking tournament, the International at Stoke. Um, so he, I'm sure he would have received a, a rankings boost provisionally, but that wouldn't have come into effect until the end of the season, and by that time, I guess he was back at number three. So he may have been provisionally number two, but the official ranking would have been whatever it was on the list at that time. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's uh, it's a, it's a, an interesting point. The provisional rankings, I'm sure at some point, Jimmy White must have been provisionally world number one, um, and I know that Steve Davis uh, came close in the early '90s, to get in the number one spot back from Hendry, but again, the official rankings are all that are recorded, really. So they're all that really matter. Um, you know, I mean, it, it was—it's often been said that Mark Williams um, dropped into the forties in the world. He, he did provisionally, but not officially. I think the lowest he ever got officially was something like twenty-five. On the provisional rankings, at one point he was in the forties, but he turned that around. But the provisional rankings in those days and we really are into the weeds here, this is niche stuff, but they were essentially a bit of a form guide, but they, they weren't the official ranking. The official ranking was set for the whole season. Of course, now the rankings change after every tournament, and they're the official rankings. And Richard continues, Finally, what ever happened to Zheng Weli? For me, uh, by far the best of the Asian referees to have officiated on the tour. He was in charge of Martin Gould versus Ding in 2013, in Sheffield, for example. I never saw him put a foot out of line. He had presence, authority and control of every match. I oversaw him referee and the respect of the players. Thanks for the podcast in the midst of a manic speller conveyor belt snooker and looking forward to many more. Thank you, Richard. I hope all is well in Oregon. Zheng uh, Welly, I guess, is in China. And I guess if we go back to China, and hopefully we will next season, we will see him there. I do hope so. Um, yeah, I agree. Very solid referee. Good presence around the table, as you say. Has that sort of, um, sort of unflustered manner, which I think players like, you know, he's not an anxious referee, he's just there doing his job. A bit like Terry Camilleri, actually, who did the Turkish final, another, another, I think, underrated official. Um, So, yeah, we hopefully will see Zheng Welly again when we go back to China. Paul Stenning, I'm writing after listening to my first ever episode of Snooker Scene. Uh, We've been going seven years, Paul, but that's fine, you've had other things to do. (laughs) I don't hold it against you. Uh, He says, I used to see the magazine when I lived in the UK, not so since living in Cyprus. By chance, I found the podcast. I didn't know of its existence. I've followed snooker since the very early 80s, late 70s, probably age three or four, and at one stage was quite serious about wanting to become a referee, but then eventually realised it might not be for me. I'm looking forward to returning to the UK later this year to actually find snooker coverage properly and, of course, actually see a tournament or two. Players-wise, I like Luca Brassell, as I saw him very early on and thought he was going to be a fine player. Also, Ryan Day, Liang Wenbo, Ali Carter, Matthew Stevens, as well as Ronnie, Mark Selby and John Higgins. I chose the media podcast to listen to first, to give me an idea, and I really enjoyed it. So I wanted to say I found your insight, and Michael's, very interesting, and it really evoked the past. My, how things have changed. I looked you up afterwards and see what a lot of fine work you yourself have done outside of the sport. Taking the cue, all puns intended, to contact you, I thought I'd say hello. Thank you, Paul, for that. That's very kind of you. But uh, you sign off actually isn't in the main body of the email it turns out Paul, get this, is the official poet for Guinea-Bissau tourism. Oh, yes, the official poet for Guinea-Bissau tourism. I don't know how many poems he has to write a year. Um, I'm guessing they <laughs> they're all saying what a lovely place it is, I imagine, as it's a tourist thing. But, uh, yeah, there, that's, that's something. That's something. So, uh, thank you, Paul, a fellow writer. Uh, now, we go to North America. Well, uh, we go back there. David Burney, hot off the press from Seattle. CCU wins the first ever Seattle Snooker Open in a tournament that included 24 players, a round-robin format to start the event, which would produce eight players that would proceed to a knockout stage to decide the champion. CCU didn't drop a frame in the entire tournament. Well done, CC. On a side note, a young, hopefully, player, Marissa Dew, was draining long bots that would be on a par with Neil Robertson. And did I mention she's 12 years old? Great stuff, and let's hope she sticks with it. The event was held at Ox Billiards, that's run by Mike Dominguez, and is where Judd Trump did an exhibition in the autumn of 2021. The future of snooker is looking bright in Canada and the USA. Next up, the Alberta Championships in Red Deer that will run from the April the 15th to the 17th. After that, looking forward to tipping a pint with you, Dave, at the World Championship. A lot of listeners seem to think that I'm some big drinker. I don't know why this, uh, this rumour started, but uh, uh, the fact is I do like a drink, and uh, thank you. If I'm there, Dave, uh, I'll check you out. I don't know... Exactly what's happening with the world championship, but uh, yes, um, uh, yeah, I may well I'm, you may well see me uh, well, in a pub. Um, we'll do two more uh, emails. Alpha Bonzi, just one question this week. Now, this uh, I preface this. I've written a piece on the Eurosport website. as I do every Monday this week about the uh, the ongoing debate about prize money distribution, and I spoke to Stephen Hallworth, who's uh, an example of a low-ranked player who's got another job, and he's in this vicious circle where he needs this job to help him earn a living because he's not earning one from snooker, but because he he spends so much time working in the pub where he works, obviously he can't devote himself fully to snooker, so the the chance to improve is is less. Anyway, Arthur says, uh, in light of your interview with Stephen Holworth for your your Eurosport article, a great read, but slightly depressing, and the great point you raised about the 77th best player on the planet out of the millions who played the game, only earning £11,000 this season, with the governing body flatly refusing to adjust the prize money structure, Would you let your son or daughter play snooker? Uh, Well, Alpha, the answer is absolutely yes, I would. Um, The point is, well, there's a number of things here. The first thing is, snooker's a great game. Um, It instills in people who play discipline, commitment, patience, a lot of virtues that are actually useful in the wider world. Um, There is a lot of money to be won. You can earn a a good living. You can have a great life from snooker Um, if you dedicate yourself. The nature of elite sport is only a few are going to earn the big money. That's true in any sport. Um, we often compare. And I made this point in the article. We often compare snooker to sports where they earn a lot more, golf and tennis, rather than sports where they earn a lot less. And the example I use is billiards, the forerunner to snooker, where you know there's there's no big money professional circuit out there. You know they're playing essentially for scraps because the television interest and the, the commercial interest isn't there. So, absolutely, I, I would never discourage anyone from playing snooker, but I think you have to also. Explain to them, it's tough, it's elite sport, it's tough. My argument in the article is, it's not the size of the cake. Prize money's bigger than it's ever been, and that's thanks to Barry Hearn. When he came in, it was something like three and a half million a year. It's now 14 million a year. So clearly, that's a massive increase in the decade he's been there. It's not the size of the cake, it's the way it's sliced. I think lower down, and I do not advocate for a minute cutting first prizes. I think that the winners deserve the big money. They've earned it. It's a reward for excellence, and in sport, elite sport, top-level sport, that's what you should do. But lower down, you could tweak it. I think playing in the first round, having to win, is putting intolerable pressure on players. Um, the UK Championship, it went from round one, nothing, to round two, six and a half grand. Now, surely that could be slightly rejigged. I'm not advocating paying people who can't win matches, but at least cover their expenses. This is an argument that is raging on the tour. That's why I wrote about it. It's not going the way. Will snooker say they have no plans to change it? Here's a prediction, though. I think it will change. I think in the next year or two, it will change. I think there will be concessions made, and I think that will be a good thing um, because we don't want to lose promising young players, you know, who are in massive debt or having to work these other jobs. You can't, if, if we're going to call them professional snooker players, then snooker has to be their main profession. They can't spend half the time doing something else as well. The other answer is cut the tour, but then that's almost like conceding defeat, It's saying we can't afford to pay everybody. £14 million is a lot of money. It can be split in a slightly fairer way, I think. I don't advocate just handing money to people for turning up. But there is a way of just rejigging it, I think, which would make it fairer. However, I would never say to anyone, don't play snooker. Because you need dreams, you need ambitions. Everyone wants to be there with that silver trophy at the Crucible. Um, and it's a long road, and all the people who have got there have had setbacks as well. And I'm sure some of them have at times have thought of giving up. But they didn't. They carried on and they achieved what they wanted to. So, um, so yeah, that's the answer. But uh, do check out the article. But finally this week, James Morrison. Firstly, I love the podcast. I got into it over the COVID period and really has got me back into a sport that I loved as a kid but stopped following until the last three or four years. I'd love the top ten episodes. Would love some more of them in the future. Some suggestions. Best snooker season, biggest underachievers, funniest players and maybe want to start the season. Top ten players to watch outside the top sixteen. Just wondered if you knew what the latest was on Marco Fu, and is he due back anytime soon? It seems sad to have lost such a good player and prolific break builder. I would have expected him back for the Crucible qualifying, but that doesn't appear to be the case. Well, he announced Marco that he was coming back, didn't he? But the the COVID situation in Hong Kong is um, is pretty bad, I think. And you know, he's been there through the whole of the pandemic. He did say he was coming back. He said he'd entered the world championship, I believe, but that was a couple of weeks ago. I don't know if, if things have changed. Um, so, listen, I hope he does. Uh, we've missed Marco. He's a very classy guy, terrific player, um, tough player to beat, certainly in his heyday. I guess the question is, <laughs> you know, if he came back, um, and, and and I do believe I'm just reading a story actually as as I uh, as I talk as I talk to you. Um, that he has actually entered the World Championship So he, is in the, he has entered But the question is Will he come over after all that um, But the question is If he does come back You know it's been a couple of years Since he's played competitively How quickly can he just pick up his game again Even if he's been playing matches in Hong Kong It's not the same as week in week out competition um, So I think he'll find it difficult But I don't know You get the sense with him he's, he's such a He's got so many layers to his game It might not take him that long Whether he could just come back and qualify You'd have to say it's probably odds against that happening. But, listen, we'd be good, good to see him again if he does come back. Um, he's been given a walk off for the tour. He should get another one. for. Uh, well, I guess he's got a two-year card already, hasn't he? So, But he, we want him back on the tour. Um, and it would be great to go back to Hong Kong as well because they had a very successful tournament there a few years ago that Neil Robertson won. Um, hasn't been held again, but, you know, fingers crossed. Things can start to happen. We can start to go back to these places. And uh, it, it's a weird... Time. I mean, it's two years pretty much to the week since we were in Clandidno when uh, the Tour Championship was called off, postponed. And we had to come home and we faced the, like everybody, we faced the lockdown and the uncertainty. And it was coming up to April, which meant World Championship normally, except the World Championship wasn't on. Um, very difficult time. Uh, and, you know, you're looking back on it, kind of surreal. Now, Covid is still a problem, but it's kind of we're almost in denial about it in a way, you know, we're just getting on with things and whether that's right or wrong I couldn't tell you because I'm not a medical person, um, that doesn't stop a lot of people giving their views but I, I, I couldn't tell you whether it's what, what's happening in the UK at the moment is right or not, but we're soldiering on, um, crowds are back and that's all, you know, good in terms of feeling like we're back to normal, but uh whether it means that the circuit goes back to normal Because not every country is the same I don't know But anyway the, the answer to the question is It looks like Marco Fu has entered the World Championship Whether he'll actually play in it Obviously we'll find out in a couple of weeks uh, It'd be great to see him back playing again uh, Yes, so I think that will do for now um, <laughs> uh, And uh, we're coming up to Gibraltar Open Live on Eurosport and Discovery Plus This week uh, 12 hours we've got uh, coverage on Thursday um, so, uh, looking forward to that, and uh, I'm sure you know people who like to complain about the coverage. I'm sure will find something to moan about, but um, but the fact is, we're on for twelve hours. Uh, <laughs> he says churlishly and um, yes, and then next week the Talk Championship, which in the UK will be live on ITV4, uh, slightly later in the evening, seven thirty. Um, just gives a little bit more time between sessions. Uh, I think one of the issues at, at night is um, you don't need to finish too early. Um, and if you get like a 10-2 or a 10-3 It will do Although with the players in the field You suspect it's unlikely I reckon the top seven on the one-year list Are basically in John Higgins is eighth You would you would fancy John to do enough in Gibraltar To, to get his place But someone can come through the pack the pri- We're talking about prize money The prize money breakdown uh, in Gibraltar Is kind of ridiculous It's a it's £1,000 a round Up to the semi-finals Which is only worth £6,000 Now that's less than the last 64 of the UK Championship Getting to the semi finals of a ranking event is worth less than the last sixty four of the UK championship. Um and then the final is twenty grand, the winner gets fifty thousand. So re- realistically, to get in that tour championship, someone is either gonna have to win it or get to the final, probably win it. Now it can happen, but John Higgins at eighth at the moment and you'd fancy him to win a couple of matches there. I'm not quite I haven't looked to who he's playing yet, so uh, uh, no, I'll just have a look at that now because you know this is what's known as preparation. But while I do that, you you kind of fancy John always to sort of plough his way through a few rounds, so I suspect he will be there. But uh, we will uh, we'll find that. Oh, he's playing. <laughs> that's, that's awkward because he's playing someone who listens to the podcast, David Grace. <laughs> David, I don't know, no offence intended, and I wish you well for the match and yeah, yeah, cause an upset, you know, cause an upset. It's been a season full of them. Um, but anyway, we will that will resolve itself. Um, and, uh, yeah, and then of course after that, it's all systems go for the world championship, qualifying and the crucible. It's all heading towards us like uh, a particularly, um, a particularly enjoyable train. Uh, that doesn't mean anything, does it? That, that sentence. Um, but anyway, we've reached the end and, uh, and thank goodness a lot of people will be saying, um, do check out the, uh, the Wave Pictures Hazel Irvin. I, I assume it's a, it's a song off their album, so I'm sure that their album is fine work. And, uh, in the meantime, we're proud members of the Sports Social Network. Check out their other podcasts. You can email us at snookascenepodcast at mail.com. That's at mail.com. Now, if this had been planned properly, I would play out with a bit more of that Hazel Irving song, but the fact is I've, I can't remember where it is now, so we're not going to. What we will do though, is say, uh, goodbye bye for now, and we'll return next time for more. Sports Social Podcast Network.